From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Transplant surgery now makes it possible for numerous organs, tissues, and even corneas to be donated. Unfortunately, many people waiting for a transplant never get the call saying that a suitable donor organ and a second chance at life has been found. On today's program, we'll discuss organ donation and transplant with a Mayo Clinic expert. When we think of life, we want to do everything we can to help somebody live as long as they possibly can. Equally important, we want to help somebody live the best quality of life that they can. So I always look at our goals as trying to add life to their years and years to their lives. Also on the program, we'll discuss a controversy over new diabetes guidelines. And the many benefits of exercise. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, someone is added to a transplant waiting list every 10 minutes. Now, April is Donate Life Month, and it's a time dedicated to encouraging people to become organ, eye, or tissue donors. And, you know, it's a chance to celebrate with those who have donated or who have received a transplant. With campuses in Arizona, Florida, and Minnesota, Mayo Clinic is the largest integrated transplant provider in the United States. And here to discuss everything transplant (laughs) in 18 minutes. And he knows it all. Is the director of the Transplant Center at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Charles Rosen. Welcome back to the program and congratulations. I think this is the first time that you've been here since you've been named the director. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here again uh, and to promote organ donation and organ donation awareness. Well, you know, it is good to have you here. And other than the bad cough you have, you look pretty good. Thank you. For having just come back from a 10-day trip in Asia. Thank you. <laughs> How beneficial perfect. is Donate Life Month? Anytime we can uh, use an opportunity to call to attention to the need for organ donation and uh, what it means not only for our patients, but even for the donor families uh, that are in a terrible situation and uh, know that the death of their loved one can result in a benefit to others. Um, we like that opportunity to do that, and every April when uh, Donate Life Month uh, comes around, we do everything we can to promote organ donation awareness. Hopefully uh, more people will think about it, reflect upon it, and uh, consider, uh, if they haven't done so already, indicating on their driver's license that they'd like to be a donor in the event of their death or putting their name on one of the registries to allow that to happen. We're going to talk a little bit more about um, organ donation in the second segment. So let's talk now about Mayo's <coughs> transplant pr- program. Uh, it's huge, isn't it? It, it really is. Uh, last year, I think we did over 2,000 transplants across Mayo Clinic. Uh, that includes over 1,300 solid organ transplant procedures and about 750 bone marrow transplants. Um, we're fortunate to be able to have three sites uh, in pretty strategic locations across the United States, and our, our protocols are completely one and the same across the three sites. So we really look at ourselves as one male clinic with three doors. Um, what are the most common organ, solid organs that you do? I assume, is it still the kidney? The kidney would be the, the most common solid organ transplant, um, both because of the need and the fact that uh, with uh, deceased donors, there's two kidneys for every donor. And with living donors, it's uh, a fairly straightforward procedure to donate a kidney with uh, fairly minimal uh, uh, risk of complications. All right, and list the other ones for us, if you would. So the kidney number one, what number two, three, and four, and then tell us about some uncommon organs that you um, 
Sure. Uh, number two would be the liver transplantation, and most of those are deceased donor transplants, but we can do living donor liver transplantation as well. Are and you doing more of those more often? We are. Um, and uh, last year we did just over 20 uh, living donor transplants at Mayo Clinic Rochester. Uh, and the reason for that is is we could talk a little bit about organ allocation and how that's changed. But in order to receive a deceased donor liver now, you have to get quite sick. And so living donor liver transplantation enables somebody to undergo transplantation much sooner than would otherwise be possible and also avoiding having to progress through their illness or even to the extent where they're critically ill. All right, liver was number two. The liver was number, number two. Three. Heart would be number three, uh, um, and uh, lung and uh, pancreas would be four and five. Uh, small bowels would be a distant six. And uh, some of the other <coughs> transplants that have been done include the face transplant, which uh, we talked about last year, which, which is an incredible success. Um, there's also extremity transplants uh, for people that have had uh, amputations. Uh, laryngeal transplantation is being contemplated. And, uh, laryngeal? Uh, for the larynx. Larynx? Yes. Okay, your voice box. That's it. Okay. And, uh, also, uh, there's been several uterus transplants done, uh, in Europe and in the United States for women that do not have a uterus, and that's their sole reason for infertility. They were born without one, or they had it removed <coughs> for some reason? Either, most of them were born without one, but, uh, it could be removed for some reason. And then uh, the, the uterus is transplanted, and it allows them to carry a pregnancy or two, and then we can take it out afterwards. You're also doing multiple organ transplants. Tell us about that, and, and what's the most number of organs you've ever done at once? Sure. Uh, the most common multiple organ transplant usually involves the kidney. Uh, so someone undergoing heart transplantation or liver transplantation, as a result of their heart or liver disease, their kidneys may fail as well, and then they com- require a combined transplant procedure. And it's very helpful when we do that with the same donor. Um, the most that I've ever done or been involved with was a three-organ transplant, which was a heart, a liver, and a kidney. Is someone who's had, this is total layperson question, someone who's had three-organ donation like that or, or uh, received three organs, do they have a lot worse time with rejection, or do you have the same amount of rejection issues if you've got one organ or three? That's you have a, to triple the dose of the... <laughs> yeah. That's a really exciting question. Uh, and the reason it's exciting, uh, when it involves the liver, the liver, for some reason, protects the other organs from rejection. Really? So um, liver transplantation, we use the same immunosuppressive medications, and they're very effective, but they're even more effective with liver transplantation. It's very rare for us to lose a liver to rejection. The patients may get an episode of rejection that requires treatment, but to actually lose the liver is very rare, so long as the patient's not naughty and continues to take their medications. Um, Why? Why does the liver do that, but lungs don't? The liver can regenerate, and it just seems as though the cells or the bile duct cells are just not as susceptible to injury, Hmm. and if they are injured, they can regrow. Uh, with a kidney, there's a specific structure to the kidney involving specified cells that okay. um, really can't regenerate. Okay. Um, and with the heart, um, the, once the muscle's gone, it's, it's hard to grow back. Uh, but with the liver, uh, it regrows. And uh, so the liver will protect a heart from rejection and a kidney from rejection. The liver doesn't care if it has a new host, but the kidney and the heart, they do. Yeah. Yeah. We don't like it here. (laughs) (laughs) You suggested that we talk about organ allocation. Why? Well, it's a 
unfortunately, we just don't have enough organs for everybody that needs them. And it's the, it's the biggest challenge in transplantation. Uh, it's quite uh, daunting to me as a clinician, uh, the fact that when I see a patient in our transplant clinic in need of liver transplantation, on average across the United States, roughly 20% of the people that we would see in place on the waiting list for a liver transplant will die uh, before a liver becomes available for them. Is that most often with the liver? I mean, I guess... Uh, Heart and lung transplantation are pretty much the same. Uh, With kidney transplantation, we do have dialysis, but dialysis is not as good as a kidney transplant, and there are longer-term complications resulting from that as well. You could be on a heart and lung machine, no walk in the park. Is there a substitute for the liver? There, While you're waiting? There really isn't. Uh, we do have some uh, artificial support devices that either involve liver cells or involve uh, kind of a juiced-up dialysis, if I can mm-hmm. call it that way. Uh, but all of those are just limited to, uh, to several hours or several days' worth of support. All right. Uh, before we take a break, how about a quick research update? What's, what's the most promising in the field of research with regard to transplantation? Well, we're still pursuing xenotransplantation, which is trying to use animal organs for humans. Uh, there's uh, cell transplantation, which is uh, uh, being examined, and also using uh, cells, either human cells or animal cells, to, for liver support devices, and genetically engineered uh, uh, tissues uh, that we hopefully at some day could use for uh, transplantation. So a lot of stuff out there. There is. just hasn't come to fruition yet. That's right. But hopefully it will. And that will hopefully obviate the need for people to donate organs. That would be wonderful. If, if I could be put out of my job, it would be fantastic. All right, Dr. Charles Rosen, Director of the Transplant Center at the Mayo Clinic. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll shift gears and talk about the importance of organ donation, including opportunities to be a living donor. You can give an organ while you're still alive. (laughs) And don't forget, we've got Myth or Matter of Fact, too. So Myth or Matter of Fact, one organ donor can potentially save eight lives. Is this a myth or a fact? We'll find out when we return. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. We are back to talk, continue to talk about organ donation awareness with Dr. Charles Rosen, who is director of the Transplant Center at Mayo Clinic. Myth or matter of fact, Dr. Rosen, one organ donor can potentially save eight lives. Is that a myth or a fact? That's a fact, Tracy. I thought it was more than that, actually. Well, those are just the solid organ transplants that are available, but then there's uh, uh, um, corneas and tissues that are potentially available as well. So which of the organs are life-saving? What what eight are we talking about? Well, they're all life-saving. When when we think of life, we want to do everything we can to help somebody live as long as they possibly can. And equally important, we want to help somebody live the best quality of life that they can. So I always look at our goals as trying to add life to their years and years to their lives. I can Um, only come up with four. Well, well, I know that's why I asked. Uh, Me too. There's there's the heart and two lungs, <laughs> oh, so that's two three. Lungs. All right. Um, a pancreas, uh, oh, yeah. uh, two kidneys, and the liver, which occasionally could even be split into two, and then there's small intestine, and that would be the the solid organ transplants. Mm. So, how many people are out there on the waiting list right now? Do you know? You have an idea? Unfortunately, 114,836 as of 20 minutes ago. No kidding. 114,000. And Dr. Shive said ten, a person is added every 10 minutes. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, 
unfortunately, about 20 people die every day uh, that are on the waiting list without getting a transplant. You had mentioned when we got before we got started about uh, a comment you sent over about when former fellows push us to change. What did you mean by that? See, we read the emails that you sent us. <laughs> what is that? What did you mean? Well, as you know, Tracy, we have uh, three transplant sites for Mayo Clinic at Mayo Clinic Rochester, Mayo Clinic Arizona, and Mayo Clinic Florida. And for each transplant organ or team, we have convergence groups so that we have the same uh, protocols at each site. Uh, and so that transplant care at Mayo Clinic is the same at Mayo Clinic Arizona as is in Florida and it is in Rochester. In Florida in particular, for me, it's a fairly personal because when we get together and we have to come to a consensus on what to do and we're discussing it with our colleagues, in Florida, I trained all but two of the surgeons, uh, or they trained with me in liver transplantation in Rochester. And so um, sometimes you kind of wonder whether or not they should be disagreeing with me or wanting to do things a little <laughs> bit different. But actually, when they do bring a different perspective to it, just as our own trainees do here in Rochester, and um, it's usually a pretty enjoyable conversation, and I think it all results in, 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 in moving everything forward. If you get put on a waiting list, um, if you need a new heart, does it make a difference where you live in the country? Or, you know, we've got our three sites here, but all over the country, does it make a difference? It doesn't make a difference where the patient lives, but it does make a difference where the patient's transplant center is. Uh, oh. Because the organ allocation is is patient-driven. The organs are allocated to a patient at a given transplant center, uh, but that transplant center's location does affect uh, organ availability. There are a lot of things going on trying to do away with the geographic disparities across the United States and almost all the organs. As a result of that, there's wider spread sharing. Uh, but then those patients that are critically ill have a much higher chance of getting a transplant, which is very good for them. But it also means because we're limited to the number of organs available that more of our, our patients that undergo transplantation are critically ill when they have the transplant done. And it doesn't make any difference how thick your wallet is, right? We're here to dispel myths. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, the system is entirely blinded to anything that you could attribute to social worth for a given patient. And we specifically avoid that in all of our uh, patient evaluation and selection processes. So tell us what you're doing this month, Donate Life Month, uh, to try and increase the number of donors. In Minnesota, we work closely with LifeSource, which is the organ procurement organization that serves Minnesota, North and South Dakota. We have a number of events scheduled, both for uh, donor recognition uh, and uh, public uh, awareness with festivities. And uh, there's various stories that have been uh, brought into the media to increase the public awareness of the need for organ donation. What about marrow? Bone marrow donation seems to be mysterious for people like to sign up to be a bone marrow donor. Yes. Um, with uh, bone marrow transplantation, many of the transplants are done with relatives when someone becomes ill, but sometimes that's not possible because nobody's a good match. And so there's a national registry which has people tissue typing done, the type of proteins that are on their blood cells. And uh, um, so when someone needs a bone marrow transplant from a, 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 an unrelated donor, uh, they can look on the registry to see if somebody might be out there that's a good match. Because that's different because it's a living donation. So That's right. Right. And so you don't, you know, just write on, you know, say in your driver's license that you're a donor. You go and get 
go to an event to get matched or to get a blood draw and get typed? Is that how that works? That's right. And Or, or they'll take a, a swab from the mouth where they can look at the cells and get the tissue typing from that. Not even a blood draw. Not even a blood wow. draw. Wow. And you get reimbursed for it, don't you? Isn't there some, if you're a donor? One of my close family members was actually called in, was on the registry and called in to be a, a donor and had to travel uh, to the transplant center in order to be worked up from a medical standpoint and also do the formal tissue typing with the blood draw. And uh, so the, a, a, a donor is reimbursed for those costs related to that donation. So let me ask you why getting Oring is, is still so difficult, especially it seems to me like uh, cremation has been such a, is such a common practice now, as opposed to having a funeral, et cetera. Why wouldn't someone say, well, you know, you might as well, uh, I'm going to be cremated anyway. You might as well take my organs before I'm cremated. When, when someone dies and becomes an organ donor, the procurement operation where the organs are taken out from the body is actually can be done in such a way that you can have an open casket funeral without any disfigurement whatsoever. Uh, even when an extremity transplant is done, that body part is replaced with a prosthesis that really matches things quite well. Uh, but with solid organ transplantation, the heart's lungs, liver, kidney, pancreas, and so forth, um, there's no outward sign of that being done other than an incision on the abdomen and chest, which you would normally not see even at an open casket funeral. So we all ought to be doing this. Tell us the simplest way to do it. Become a donor. The simplest way is to indicate it on your driver's license and, uh, um, or to ha- when you have your driver's license renewed. And in the meantime, there's registries in every state, uh, in every state, uh, that one can register on to, uh, um, dem- to designate your intent in the event of your death. And you can restrict what organs they can take, right? If you say, I don't want them to take my eyes, you can say that. It's difficult to do that with a driver's license, um, but uh, it can be done, I think, on the registry. We've been talking about the importance of organ donation, including being a living donor, with the director of the Mayo Clinic Transplant Center, Dr. Charles Rosen. Dr. Rosen says it's as simple as checking the box on your driver's license to become an organ donor or get tested with a simple cheek swab to be part of the bone marrow registry. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Rosen. Thank you very much. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, understanding the latest diabetes guidelines. And how exercise can help your immune system. Want to hear and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Or check out the more than 200 Mayo Clinic Radio segments on video, now available on YouTube. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Springtime brings warm temperatures and blooming trees, but for close to one in three Americans, it also brings annoying seasonal allergies. Dr. Gonzalez Estrada says the telltale signs of allergies are easy to spot. Itchy, watery eyes, noses, nasal congestion. Pollen is the most common culprit because it's a small particle that goes through your nose and affects your upper airway. When you have a pollen allergy, your immune system identifies the pollen as harmful and essentially overreacts. Over-the-counter medications can help treat allergy symptoms, and in extreme cases, allergy shots can help. But Dr. Estrada says the easiest thing to do is to avoid or limit exposure. Now, obviously, you can't live in a bubble, but air conditioning is going to be your friend. So keep your air conditioning on in your car and in your house. 
Dr. Estrada also recommends people change their clothes after coming inside to remove pollen that might have stuck to you and showering before bed to get rid of pollen that might stick in your hair. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, recently the American College of Physicians, the ACP as it's known, reviewed the guidelines for treating patients with type 2 diabetes and provided its own recommendations. Then they were published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. The ACP is now recommending that patients should aim to have A1C levels between 7 and 8%. Now, A1C is a measure of your average blood sugar levels over the past two to three months. But medical groups that specialize in diabetes treatment, including the American Diabetes Association, strongly disagree with the ACP's less stringent blood sugar goals and stand by their current guidelines, recommending an A1C level below 7%. This all adds up to a lot of confusion for diabetes patients. Here to discuss those recommendations and comment on the controversy is Mayo Clinic endocrinologist Dr. Adrian Vela. Welcome to the program, Dr. Vela. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Dr. Vela, great to see you. Great to have you on the program, especially to discuss this subject. You know, uh, we've had some controversy about blood pressure guidelines, and they've been changing. We've had some controversy about when women ought to start getting their mammograms, at what age. And now we've got some controversy over uh, what the ideal blood sugar level is, and diabetics ought to keep their blood sugar at what level. Doctors can't agree on anything. (laughs) Well, I always say that guidelines serve mainly the purpose of the people who write them, so you have to keep that in mind sometimes. But joking aside, I think guidelines apply, should be applied to perhaps 90% of our our practice, but we always have to recognize that there are individual patients for whom exceptions should be made. As you mentioned, the A1C is a running average of your blood sugars over the previous three months. And uh, it's a measure which correlates best with outcomes. So um, with diabetes, we we are worried about complications affecting the vascular system. So there are macrovascular complications which affect large vessels and um, which are associated with heart attacks, for example, or stroke. The A1C correlates best with microvascular complications of diabetes, which is um, neuropathy. Small blood vessels. Yes, small blood vessels, I'm sorry. Neuropathy, so the tingling and loss of sensation in the feet, which sometimes causes you to shorten people's legs (laughs) uh, because of (laughs) ulcers that don't heal. Kidney disease and kidney failure, and diabetes is certainly the leading cause of hemodialysis in the United States and blindness, retinal complications. Now, we know that there is strong scientific basis for suggesting an A1C below 7%, because in a population, those complications rise dramatically once your A1C is consistently above 7%. That's where the 7% recommendation came from. I just want to point out one thing, uh, or ask you one thing, and that is the A1C is also important in knowing 
how well the patient has controlled their diabetes despite what they say. I mean, they might come of in and, and, and they say, well, you know, I've got my diabetes under control and today it was uh, 120 and, or 100 and that's pretty good. But if you do that A1C test, you find out if in fact what they're telling you is true and if they in fact have been controlling their blood sugar, right? That is correct. Yeah, okay. It is not the be-all and end-all um, because in a sense, it's like the altimeter on a plane, Okay. It might tell you that you're flying at 30,000 feet, but it's not going to tell you that there's a mountain which is 35,000 feet high a mile away. Mm -hmm. So you have to interpret things in the right context. But certainly um, aiming below seven is a good target for most people. Balanced against that is that as you aim lower, you might increase the risk for hypoglycemia. Not enough blood sugar. Correct. A low blood low sugar. Low blood glucose. Yeah. Which, okay. which might cause people to have altered mentation. They can get confused. They can pass out. They can have a seizure. So it's not always, it's not a good thing. And you certainly don't want patients to have hypoglycemia frequently. So it is reasonable to balance the risk of hypoglycemia in an individual patient versus the risk of complications when you're setting a target. An 80-year-old who doesn't have complications, you may be less worried about their 10-year risk of developing small blood vessel complications from the diabetes, but you're certainly going to be more worried if they have a low blood sugar. In those situations, you might justify a slightly higher A1C target if the goal is to prevent hypoglycemia. But overall, as a blanket recommendation, I would still advocate that seven or below is a reasonable target. So you're on the side of the American Diabetes I most certainly am. And what is Mayo Clinic's position on A1C guidelines? I, I think most of my colleagues would agree with that statement. Over the years, it's become easier to achieve an A1C of seven or below while avoiding hypoglycemia. Um, there are multiple medications which make it less likely to cause hypoglycemia. And also, there are easier modalities to check your blood sugar so that you know if you're going low or not. So you're saying that the importance of keeping the blood sugar low or within range outweighs the risk of having an occasional episode of the blood sugar too low or hypoglycemia? Um, not quite. What I am saying is, what I am saying is that... Um, in an ideal world, we should always avoid a low blood sugar because a low blood sugar might have immediate consequences um, that you know are of relevance to the patient just as much as the 10-year consequences of complications. But I think balancing that risk is a lot easier today. Well, there are lots of ways for patients to measure their blood sugar, and can't they sort of tell when their blood sugar is getting low and have a candy bar or some orange juice? They can. They can. Um, and as I said today, a lot of medication makes it possible to keep your blood sugars in a range which is acceptable for glycemic control without putting you at increased risk for complications. Um, and then there's this question of awareness of low blood sugars and their ability to handle a low blood sugar, um, which might change the equation slightly. Certainly an airline pilot, you know, the risk of hypoglycemia is paramount. So nobody can get a commercial flying license if they're on insulin to date. 
There is, in fact, an epidemic of diabetes in this, this country, right? There is an epidemic of diabetes in this country. All yes. related to obesity, pretty much? Uh, no, I think that would be a bit unfair. Okay. Um, so diabetes is a disease which, unfortunately, uh, the patient is the person who gets blamed most of the time for having diabetes. But the fact of the matter is that um, there is some heterogeneity in um, the uh, a person's resistance and ability to make insulin uh, in the face of dietary indiscretion. So if you look at people who need bariatric surgery, okay, who are extremely overweight, only one third of those people actually have diabetes. So even at that extreme of weight, you still have people who do not have diabetes. Um, and there are people who are lean um, and yet develop diabetes in their 50s, um, despite having done all the right things. All right, so you're on the side of the American Diabetes Association. People with type 2 diabetes ought to keep their A1C at 7% or lower. If at all possible, yes. I think it would be wise to discuss targets with your primary caregiver. Always wise to do that. Always wise to do that. Endocrinologist, Dr. Adrian Vella from the Mayo Clinic, talking about the new diabetes guidelines, the Mayo Clinic opinion on the same. Thanks, Dr. Vella. My pleasure. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss the many benefits of exercise. Some might surprise you. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, we all know that exercise is good for you. It's an important part of maintaining a healthy weight and a healthy heart. Yes. But, you know, that's not all. There are other benefits to exercise as well. I'm sure there are. (laughs) Well, let's talk about it. A study from the University of Birmingham and King's College London found that exercise over the course of a lifetime can also help keep your immune system young and healthy, making it easier to fight disease as we age. Here to discuss the many benefits of exercise is Mayo Clinic anesthesiologist and human performance expert, Dr. Michael Joyner. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Joyner. Good to see you, Tom. Good to see you, Tracy. So I guess we don't need to convince you about the benefits of exercise. Right. Tom, if you look at really every organ system in the body, starting with the brain, the blood vessels to the brain, the heart, the lungs, the immune system, uh, your metabolism, your liver, you name it, your skeletal muscle, your bones. Uh, Exercise has beneficial effects on almost every single organ system in the body for people of of every age. Including the immune system. So how does that happen? Well, what people think happens is that um, when you exercise, you get a bolus of your own personal stem cells. Oh, what do you mean by that? Uh, well, you mobilize these things called progenitor cells. It gets a little complicated, but we all hear about stem cells <laughs> and regenerative medicine. But it turns out exercise is your own personal dose of regenerative medicine. Okay. On a daily basis, those uh, stem cells or progenitor cells go to different places in the body where they help repair, rebuild, and remodel tissues. And that is also true in the bone marrow where the immune system gets started. So you're suggesting that we have more of these cells that help fight off infection, whether right. it's bacterial or viral or, or whatever. Because, Cancer as well. Yeah, because of exercise stimulating the bone marrow. Stimulating the bone marrow and stimulating progenitor cells, which some are in the bone marrow, some are other places in the body that go into the bone marrow and then ultimately turn into, quote, better or, or uh, younger, relatively younger uh, immune cells. So if you look at the immune systems of older people who are physically active, they're functionally much younger than you would predict based on their stated age. And that's also true with their heart, their lungs, their skeletal muscle, 
and it really is the closest thing to the fountain of youth. Is is there good evidence that people who exercise get sick less often? Well, it turns out there's large epidemiological studies showing that um, in in about the 30 major forms of cancer, except for melanoma, which is associated with sun exposure, exercise is protective on an epidemiologic basis in about half of them. Meaning studying a population. Studying a large population. And, yeah. People that exercise a lot have have, have uh, fewer cancers. Does it make a difference if, you know, you started exercising as a child and as a college, high school, college athlete, whatever, you just keep on going? Is it too late never, to start exercising? Never too late. Never too late. And, and the important thing is for people to find something that works for them, something that's sustainable for them, and something that can fit into their, their daily uh, daily plan. One of the most important things in the last five or ten years is, you know, people hear about 30 minutes per day of exercise. Well, it turns out you get the same benefit if you do three 10-minute bouts, and that can be accomplished by something as simple as parking a little farther away in the parking lot and taking a little bit longer uh, walk in from where you are. So a bunch of short, small bouts that give you a cumulative total are just as good as doing it all in one one bite. So we've known for a long time that exercise was good for your cardiovascular system, right. your your heart, your blood vessels. We talked about the benefits of the uh, the immune system and these progenitor cells, you as bet. you call them. Um, but there's also some recent evidence about uh, the positive effect on not be- becoming demented as you get older. Right. And th- there was this study in the journal Neurology that showed that highly fit, middle-aged women were less likely to develop dementia decades later. Well, well a couple of things uh, there, um, Tom. If you talk to Ron Peterson down our our, our tremendous Alzheimer's expert here in Rochester at Mayo, uh, Ron will tell you that if you look at the risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, a lot of them have a tremendous overlap with cardiovascular risk factors. or diabetes, hypertension, blood lipids, inactivity, things like that that you mentioned. And so one of the things that happens in the brain as people age is the little tiny blood vessels, the capillaries that take blood and oxygen to the brain and take waste products away, get stiff, get damaged, don't work as well. And one of the things that is both true in the brain and throughout the body is that people who exercise, their small blood vessels work better, and they continue to work well as they age. One of the things we did in my lab with Dr. Joe Barnes, who's now at the University of Wisconsin, is we gave people CO2 to breathe, carbon dioxide. Well, it turns out carbon dioxide dilates your brain blood vessels. And if you look at at what happens as people age, the ability of, of the brain blood vessels to dilate to carbon dioxide goes down. But when you take fit people, give them a carbon dioxide, fit older people, guess what? Their brains vasodilate just like young people. So it's got a lot to do with blood vessels all over the body. And blood vessels are everywhere. Um, I just want to know if it makes a difference if I cardiovascular exercising or weightlifting. I probably should be doing both. Well, and and my response to that is yes. (laughs) So, So the main thing is do something. And, and I think uh, for a long time we emphasized uh, mostly cardiovascular exercise, but, but the, one of the big problems, especially as people get into their 60s and 70s, is frailty. So strength training becomes important or keeping your strength up through things like gardening and, 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 and chores and housework. And, and I think people still get tremendous benefit from strength training only. I do a combination of both, and as I've gotten older, I'm 59 now, I've started to do more strength training. What do you think about interval training? We have had heart specialists on here who uh, are touting that as as a as a good thing, uh, as a good form of exercise. First of all, what does it mean, and are you a proponent? Interval training is is are periods of faster or higher intensity exercise by uh, interspersed with periods of slower exercise or less intense exercise. It's the 
absolute bedrock of training for elite endurance athletes. When I was it's like this, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's how I started running. That's how yeah, I was yeah, trained to, to run, run, and that's how I run. Yeah, and and you see it in the swimmers, you see it in the distance runners, the cross country skiers, the cyclists, and so forth. And essentially, citizens' versions of this have emerged. So people do a minute of or two or three of fast walking, followed by a minute or two or three of slower walking, so on and so forth. So there's a couple things. One, it is a very efficient way to get in shape. Two, it can break up the monotony of always doing things at the same. Uh, uh, same pace. You probably get a little bit more bang for your buck. But again, I wouldn't uh, say you have to do interval training. I would say it's a nice thing you can add on to do uh, as well as your normal training. I personally do a lot of interval training, but that that probably relates more to my long history in, in, in sports when I was a young kid than it does the fact that I'm a middle-aged person. Statistics show that more than ever, Americans are exercising, yet obesity is right. on the rise. So those things don't seem to go together. What's the disconnect? We live in a tremendously obesogenic environment. Um, what does that mean? It means it's just something that <laughs> causes obesity. obesity. Yeah, so and yeah, if you yeah. think about it, you know, you're younger than Tom and I, Tracy, but when, when we were kids and you went to McDonald's, you got a small hamburger, yeah. about 15 French fries, and a 10-ounce uh, <laughs> yeah. soft drink. That's about 500 calories. You can Not eat even one, on the menu now. Yeah, you could eat one of those for lunch the rest of your life, and you're not going to get fat. <laughs> it's hard to walk into a fast food place now and, and not walk out with about 1,000 calories. Uh, I mean, things are supersized. It's very, very easy to do nothing all day long. Uh, so even though people are exercising, probably what happens is, is the amount of sedentary time they have overwhelms what exercise they're doing. And then the other thing is, is that, you know, you go out and, and walk or, or jog two or three miles, that's two or three hundred calories. Well, you can undo that with a bag of chips. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and don't forget, quickly. there's a difference in activity level, too, because right. remember, you and I were the remote. You might have been, too. Uh, I was you know, the remote. And we had to open the garage door. Bingo. We didn't have a garage door open. You had to get out of the car. You had to lift the garage door. There's a lot of things that we used to have to do activity-wise that we don't, wise, that we don't anymore. Tom. Well, and I'll give you an example. Is is I like to ride my bike to work. And I live about a, just a mile or two from, from work. And, and, uh, but when it's icy and it's cold and snowy from about Thanksgiving to about now, uh, I don't ride. I rode, mm-hmm. and, and I notice that, that my weight goes up two or three pounds in the winter. As soon as I start riding my bike again, just, just a couple miles a day of, of biking just goes right down. You know, by July, you ought to be able to ride your bike they, here in Minnesota. <laughs> well, you know, one of the real interesting <laughs> things about that is, is the, the big, uh, UK Biobank, their their version of personalized medicine or precision medicine initiative in the United Kingdom, they've looked at the genes associated with obesity and some lifestyle factors. And people who ride their bikes to work are 1.5 BMI units lighter than people who don't. And and that's that's about five or eight times the effect size of the largest gene variant associated with obesity. So it really matters what you do. All right. Bottom line is you got to exercise. The benefits are too strong to ignore. And find something you can do. Find something sustainable. Do it almost every day. All right. Anesthesiologist and human performance expert, Dr. Michael Joyner, always great to have you on the program. Thanks always for great to up. be here. Thank yep. you. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a health care professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. 
please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.